0: Hey everyone, the episode you're about to listen to is one of the very first ones that we did and the sound recording is not that great.
1: It took us a little bit to hit our stride and we enjoyed these first episodes but they maybe aren't our strongest ones.
0: So we've got some better equipment and honed our skills. The recording quality gets a lot better around episode 10.
1: Stick it out, keep listening. It gets better from here. I'm Ben, and you're listening to
0: the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list.
1: Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Hey, this is Sound Logic again, and uh, we're really excited to be back today discussing album number nine from Rolling Stone, the magazine's Top 500 album list. This time, it's Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan.
0: and thanks for joining us everybody we're very excited to have a special guest with us uh, my friend from university days and from high school days ben and chris went to the same high school we'd like to introduce chris clements chris thanks for joining us today
2: yeah yeah happy to be here guys
0: Uh, so we're talking about dylan's blonde on blonde um and so we always ask you know do you have any memories so uh we invited Chris here because he does. So Ben, do you have any memories of this album? Have you listened to it before?
1: Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, in that same phase when I downloaded all the Beatles albums, I also snagged a few Paul Simon records and uh, some Dylan albums. And this was one of them. Uh, and it, I think it got the most play on my iPod than any of the others. Uh, and I wouldn't have been able to say that until this listen through uh, where I started to realize, oh, I, I know this song. Oh, I know that one too. Um, and, and I don't know why this one stuck when some of the others didn't and I'm actually really looking forward to based on uh, you know, I would say how little I enjoyed the last Dylan record to be able to, be able to talk about it with someone <laughs> who does really enjoy Dylan and, and to maybe figure out why it is that I appreciate this one more so than, than the last and, and maybe what it is about this particular sound of Dylan um, that I'm drawn to um, the first track though Draws me right back to something that we've already mentioned, and that's the Forrest Gump soundtrack. I think Mikey brought it up for the, uh, when we talked about pet sounds. Um, yeah. I think that Everybody Must Get Stoned line uh, was a track that I'd, I'd sort of nervously skip ahead on, uh, not wanting my parents to be uh, catching me listening to songs about drug use. Um, I'm sure that they <laughs> they already knew that song and it uh, wouldn't have bothered them too much at all, but it felt a little scandalous that that song was included on that soundtrack and uh, as a youngster uh that was my introduction to dylan i guess
0: yeah I, I i would say that was probably the first time i had heard dylan and maybe i had heard uh, a couple other tunes uh, blowing in the wind maybe or something but Uh, This album was, except for that song, brand new to me. And and yes, I had heard it many times. And when I was a kid, like, Everybody Must Get Stoned, I didn't have a clue. Like, I had no idea what... Someone probably had to spell it out for me. I was pretty naive. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I didn't get it. But but I really liked that song. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And other than that, no, it was totally new. And like you, Ben, uh, I didn't particularly enjoy... The previous dylan album we've discussed highway 61 revisited uh, there was a lot of problems with that album for me personally and uh this one i really really enjoyed it so i'm really excited to talk about that yeah
2: did, did, you, did you like that song rain day woman incidentally
0: oh i like it it's a lot of fun
2: really it's I do you, I remember, you,
0: do you like it <laughs> i
2: i think i do as well i remember in your former podcast you had like that thing where you kind of critiqued bob dylan's use of the slide whistle at the beginning of whatever song yeah this was kind of rainy day women it's a it's a it reminds me like of the a and w bear you remember that <laughs> where he like walks down the road and there's like the tuba playing (laughs) and it's (laughs) like it's a blues song but it has that same same kind of aesthetic which i I was wondering if you guys were going to like kind of kind of go for this one and say this is not for us either i'm 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 surprised actually that you you're resonating with this
1: it's not it's not resonating for me um i think Partially because I think it it feels, uh, I don't know, it feels dated in some way that I can't quite put my finger on. The other piece is that I think that this is the Dylan voice that I think of when people make a Dylan impression. That like, everybody loves, you know, that's the the Dylan mockery, I think. And so I think I like some of the stuff that's a little bit more, uh, I don't know, subdued maybe. Um, this just feels like he's doing a caricature of himself and, uh, (laughs) and I can't, I can't quite figure out what that's about, but
0: for me, I guess, and it's a fine line, but it was the difference between playful and silly. Hmm. I thought that the slide whistle in highway 61 was just silly and very juvenile. And I didn't find from my listening perspective, which could be very different than, the original audience uh i didn't find there was a place for it this song i find very playful and fun but not as silly um and i find that it's effective uh and it it is a little more yeah a little more raw and it's got that it sounds like they're at a party which who knows could have been the case uh <laughs> yeah, yeah. not sure what happened would a slide whistle have made it better uh, you know what a slide whistle might have even fit in here because we've already got that playful um, you know there's there's lots of brass and they're very the the bla the brass are being played in a in a very kind of uh, loose way almost a new orleans style very yeah. loose very fun very sounds playful. like a parade uh, yes exactly right so i think the slide whistle might have fit here better than in the <laughs> other song I still, I mean, it's still to me a very, I mean, it's a thing that a three year old plays as you have described. And I just, I just didn't feel that it fit on that song. This one, yeah, maybe, but I guess that was a difference for me. That's my, uh, I was, last album, I was trashing it and now I'm defending it. (laughs) So go
2: figure. Ring Day Women (laughs) is the single or at least one of the singles from this album. Yeah. Which I'm going to, I'm going to say that that took me by surprise. Like if I was to release mm. a signal from the album, it probably wouldn't be kind of the tuba A&W type bear type thing. <laughs> but for some, whatever reason, like it was really, really well received at the time when it was released to the point where it makes it on soundtracks and things. Right.
0: Yeah. But, um, I, I guess the other thing too, is this song was very familiar to me. So maybe that's why I was more uh, partial to okay, it.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, and maybe that's why, uh, you know oh yeah of course this makes sense i've been listening to this for 25 years uh as opposed to the other one which i'd never heard so maybe that's part hmm. of it too just a bias. interesting okay so some details on this album this was released june 20th 1966 and this is the seventh studio album by bob dylan this is the album that immediately follows highway 61 revisited which we already talked about that was album number four
1: which i gotta interject here that that blew my mind, uh, partially because huh. I had thought that when Dylan, quote-unquote, went electric, he stayed electric. This sounds much more acoustic and folky to me, and so I would have assumed it came before Highway 61 revisited. Do you have any insight into that dynamic, Chris?
0: And a quick question here I have, and Chris, maybe you can answer this. What Was 61 the album where he officially went electric?
2: Oh, jeez. You guys, um,
0: <laughs> I don't <Well>. know. Maybe. <laughs> Ben, Ben, was that? It was Highway sixty one where he they said he went electric, right? Uh, or was it this? I one? thought
1: that sixty one may have been an album or two into that.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I okay. I want to comment on that though about Blonde on Blonde. I do hear a lot of electric things. There's a lot of there's a lot of guitar in some of the blues um, solos that are happening between the choruses and the verses. So you'll hear that on a number of different tracks, mm. a lot of uh, electric rhythm guitar. Uh, so I do feel that although there is a bit of a, still an acoustic vibe on this album, there's, there's a lot of electric thing. And if you're not a fan of that, it, it probably would have just jumped right out at you. Mm. So uh, it's definitely there. Um, I guess maybe what you're hearing, Ben, is it's just more of a blend. There's a bit yeah, more of a balance. Yeah, perhaps he, it's He didn't go... When we say, oh yeah, Dylan went electric, we listen to this album. It's not like every single song has tons of electric. I find it was a nice balance. And maybe that's why it kind of struck you that way.
1: Yeah. Just for some uh, history, Bringing It All Back Home comes before Highway 61 Revisited. And that was the album where the first half was acoustic. The second, the B side, or the side two, I guess, was electric. Um, Okay, so
2: Ben, can you clear? Was that was bringing it all back home? That was the one where he went like officially electric, and people went up in arms.
1: Well, so I don't know. That's the first album, but there's also this um, live appearance that he makes, where he does the second half of his set. I think it's at a yeah. folk festival. He does the second half of his set. I electric. think it was
2: Newport folk, wasn't Yeah. It? In, yeah. In,
1: I think that's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I remember watching the video for
1: that. So I was 64 bringing it back home comes out in 65 along with highway 61. revisited. This is part of that ridiculous stretch where he, he's releasing like two albums a year. And you're right. Yeah. Pe- people just flipped out.
2: So I remember trying to like figuring out Dylan and, and going on YouTube and, and watching these things. And people were angry when when the yeah. band came out at newport um but then they then he started playing all these songs that I thought were like these are iconic songs, but it, it takes a moment to remember perhaps that like they're hearing this for the first time, yeah, and they don't have this the same like sense of this is Dylan, and these are iconic songs. they're just like, this is awful,
1: Our hero deserted us
2: yeah, yeah, basically,
0: yeah, so this is definitely. We can say definitively this was after the electric movement for yeah. Dylan. Uh, how many albums? We'll we'll leave that for someone else <laughs> to uh, to determine. <laughs> um, yeah, so this uh, so Dylan wrote everything. Uh, this hit number nine on the Billboard's top two hundred ch- album charts in the U.S. and number three on the UK top seventy five chart. So interesting. We, we was I like to, I mean, it doesn't make or break a good album, but I've always find it interesting how it did at the time yeah. in terms of that. Uh, critical eye. Um, it's been certified for 2 million uh, sales units in the US and 300,000 in the UK, so 2.3 million, which is quite a lot, um, more than some of the other albums we've just discussed. And uh, I think this is really interesting. This is the first studio album that Dylan records after he starts touring with the Hawks as a backing band. And if you don't know who the Hawks are, you'd probably know their other name, the band. Interesting. No, no reaction. No rea- <laughs> I thought you guys were going to, re- Whoa! wow. I didn't know that. Okay. No, no, I, we,
2: yeah. Uh, no, knew that. You, you,
0: you guys already, you guys are music. Yeah. No, did already know. Yeah, did so. you
2: know like the band, as I understand it, they're Canadian and formed between yes. Hamilton and Toronto. And uh, yes. actually before this, I was trying to figure out, who in the band if anyone or all of them um are from Hamilton or Toronto and i couldn't they didn't list nationalities or birthplaces on the wikipedia page but that's where they started and so it's you know hometown kind of
0: they joined the hawks like ronnie hawkins they joined him one by one between 58 and 63 and i couldn't tell you which one joined when and then Around sixty four sixty five, they stopped playing with Ronnie Hawkins and started playing with Bob Dylan as his touring band. Um, and they were already known as the Hawks by playing with uh, Ronnie Hawkins. It was after they, when they decided to make their own album that they decided they needed another name. Uh, obviously, they didn't get very creative. Yeah. I
2: think, <laughs> I think, I think, I, do you guys you remember, remember watching, I think, the last waltz? It's that dvd and i think there's some outtakes or some interviews and and i think it's robbie robertson describes how they got the name the band and by my recollection what happened is uh when dylan would go perform and, and they would be his backing band at a certain point every concert dylan would introduce as he says the band to the to the audience and so they just kind of took that moniker, like Dylan would say, this is the band and introduced them. So they would say eventually, yeah, we are the band and the, the, band. Name, the uh, name stuck. That's my understanding of how this thing came about.
0: That, yeah, that's, there is an interview in that film where one of the guys talks about that. And that is pretty much what happened. They were playing around with other names, but they had always been introduced as the band, so they just went with that kind of kind of funny, but obviously they they did well. Um, that didn't hurt them. So something that Ben and I have talked about already, we've talked about Canadian uh, involvement on this top list. Maybe this is some of the first Canadians on the list. We said that. All right. Joni Mitchell has the first album uh, as a Canadian on the list. You know, but we've got uh, maybe a couple musicians that almost counts, although uh, only. Only Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko appear playing on the album, okay? Uh, and I think just maybe one track each they filled in. So they started touring with them, but they weren't in the studio with Dylan for
1: this. And he starts uh, doing like practice sessions with them in Toronto, right? So maybe the reason that we like this album more is because the origin is really in our, what we would consider to be our home city. There's
0: a <laughs> Yeah, that's gotta be it. Some maple flavor there that just
1: comes through without even realizing <laughs> yeah. it.
0: Right. Yeah, so that's uh yeah, some interesting little background there. Uh this is the third double album that we've talked about on the list, which is interesting. We're at we're at album number nine and there's already been three double albums, which don't I don't wanna say are super, super rare, but they're certainly a lot less common so uh, Exile Main Street was a double album and London Calling uh, London Calling was a double album so that's uh, I guess that's three albums in a row three doubles in a row Even while we were discussing London
1: Calling I think you know we were sort of on the fence about whether it really deserved to be a double album or if it would have made just a really solid and much better uh, single album that's definitely the case for the Rolling Stones and I would argue. I think yep. that that would be the case for this album too. That it would be, it would make a really, really strong single album. Um, but we'll get to why I think that in a
0: little. We'll, bit. we'll get to we'll get to that, and yeah, we'll talk about. Uh, we'll hear your your verdict on <laughs> which songs you would cut. I don't even
1: know if I'll go that um,
0: far, but I yeah. love discussing <laughs> I love discussing. Album covers, I can stare at album covers for, forever. And this is, uh, again, another kind of iconic Bob shot here. The album cover is just a picture of Bob Dylan straight on, you know, from kind of his chest up right to the top of his head. It looks like it's out of focus. It's not totally in focus. He's got a scarf on, a jacket on. And his hair, in Highway 61, it was kind of like almost a straight up kind of quaff, And this is more the full round sort of afro shape but still kind of uh squirrely and strewn about and he's outside you know outside a brick wall somewhere and i thought also interesting on the front of this album unless it's very small or hidden it doesn't say the name of the album Mm -hmm. and any other image i've looked at it it doesn't doesn't say anything it doesn't say bob dylan blonde on blonde it's just a picture of him so uh any any
2: comments on the cover guys it's a little out of focus, eh? Do you guys notice that? You think it's artistic merit? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he's trying to say something with the out of focus uh aesthetic here?
0: I think so. I mean either him or the or the photographer or the
2: yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the
0: production team, if there was a production team, um back at the studio, because again and I I'm not in the industry, so I don't know who who makes the final. When you're putting an album together and you get the music from the artist uh, who puts the art layout? Who puts the the album cover and the album design layout together? I imagine it's not really the musicians. It's somebody back at the office or yeah, whatever. Really. So I don't know.
1: Apparently this time it was Dylan. Um, the the oh, okay. photographer, I read a quote from him that said uh, it was freezing cold and no one wanted to be outside. Uh, so he just fired off a bunch of shots and they went back in. Um, but when he got them all printed, Dylan was like, I like that one. He's like, seriously, huh. that one's out of focus. And he's like, yeah, we're, we're going with that one. So uh, for for Dylan, there was something <laughs> about uh, either this look or I don't know, maybe just the vibe that came off with the out of focus one that, uh, that he liked. Uh, apparently they were better shots Mm. but it was rushed and uh and uh he went with this one so
2: yeah let me jump in here i i just thinking about the focus on this album it's interesting dylan would choose that um i think he's a he's an artist and he's a master at what he does i think there's a lot of skill and craft in his songs and i think there's also a lot of just going for it you know there's just um i remember mm-hmm. reading his book whenever it came out quite um, 2004 or 5 or somewhere around there and and he would, he would get, in the in his writing i remember he, he would get angry at people who are looking for meaning in some of his songs some of his songs and i think that's important uh he would just say like mm-hmm. this is just what i said i'm not a poet i'm not a prophet like it just the words struck me and i wrote them down and there's no great meaning and and I sometimes I, I feel like like he he gets to be attributed um, the status of an artist that's a little beyond what he was actually shooting for at the time. So I wonder if this like this fuzzy mm. kind of quick piece of art, which is the cover, is emblematic of his of his larger approach to his songwriting and to his craft. like there was some thought that was certainly put into it. But at at the same time, it's just like, well, this is what came out, and this is what we're going to go with.
1: It's possible we're overthinking
0: it.
2: (laughs) It's possible.
0: Yeah, on this double album, there's 14 tracks. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to list them all, but I'm wondering, guys, if you could uh, maybe give me your two or three favorites, Uh, not in any order. Just, uh, Chris, do you have any favorites on this album?
2: Uh, I really, really like Visions of Johanna, to the point where um, sometimes when I put this album on, it's just maybe for that one song. The song is it's simple and, and, and raw, and maybe it fits in with that like kind of just after 2000s was the rise of singer-songwriters, at least in my time, that weren't like super polished. They kind of had a maybe a bit of a rasp in their voice but it made made the sound feel authentic so i i loved visions of johanna from that and um i also like it because it's long so you put on the one track and you can really get into it it's not like like a two little minute pop pop track it's it's you can really you can go somewhere with this track
1: i have a single friend named johanna I need to ask
0: her if she was named in honor nothing, of this. <laughs> <laughs> this track. Like she's the only friend you have na- uh, that's named Johanna or she's single. <laughs> uh,
1: she's the only friend I have named Johanna.
2: Uh, and she's single. gotcha.
1: Okay. Which is amazing for uh, a person who is friends with everyone to only have one friend named Johanna. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really like that song too. Uh, and I, I'm realizing that as I go through this list um, that my favorite tracks on this album are the ones that are in a minor key I Want You and, and Stuck Inside of a, Stuck Inside of Mobile um, I think are three of my favorites and, I, and I'm and i wondering now if um, Dylan's voice fits better with melancholy music mm-hmm. for me and I, I've got to do some more thinking about that before I, I make a, a clear statement on that but um but yeah there's something that works for me in all three of those tracks aside from i'm gonna disagree with you just slightly chris i think seven and a half minutes is way too long for any song even even if it's one of my favorites (laughs) no that's what makes it so great like you really get into it and one of my biggest hang-ups with this so-called double album is having three tracks that are over seven minutes one of them that's 11 minutes 19 seconds but
0: oh you're not gonna like one of my picks (laughs) go ahead
1: (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: okay, I, I, uh, yeah, I have a few tracks that I really enjoyed. The first one I want to talk about is track number 4, One of Us Must Know, sooner or later. The first time listening through this album, I turned it on, and I thought, you know, two, three tracks in, oh, I kind of like this album. Then that track started, and he started singing the verse, and I thought, oh, oh this is good. He got to the pre-chorus. And I perked up again And went Oh that's really nice I like that And then there's a big build up To the chorus And when he started playing it I I was at work sitting at my computer I actually said out loud Oh yeah (laughs) Like I I just I just started yelling Because like I really Like Just the The build of it And the The instrumentation There's a lot of like Really uh, Big sounding piano Like there's a lot of piano They guy goes, whoever's playing piano goes up and down the manual uh plays a ton of notes and then there's a lot of organ on the chorus that just kind of blasts you right in the face and it's a really big and explosive sound and i really really enjoyed it and it really struck me as exciting uh so that was probably the first song that i really fell in love with on the album and although i've grown to enjoy some other ones as well it's still one that i really really, really like um I really, I really enjoyed... Wait, before
1: you go on, Mike, I'm, I'm curious about um, the the piano that backs One of Us Must Know is slightly out of tune, which was a sticking point on the last album. Oh, yeah,
0: okay.
2: yeah,
0: yeah. I, I want to, yeah, I do want to, you know what, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to talk about the, gu- the guitar, one of the guitars on this, and actually I didn't know this until after I'd listened to it, this is the track that Robbie Robertson plays guitar on on this album. It's the only one that he joins in on. And one of the rhythm guitars on this song is way out of tune. And that does drive me nuts. But even even, even though, in spite of that, I still really, really like yeah. the track, if you could tune that guitar up, it would be even better. But yes, that ticks me off. Okay,
2: well, hold on, Mike. But what if... Uh, When I was looking into this album a little bit, uh, one of the the musicians, Al Cooper, uh, who I'm pretty sure is a guitarist, but sometimes plays organ or keys as well, Um, he was speaking about this album, and he said that no one has ever captured the sound of 3 a.m., better than that album <laughs> and i thought you know what this is like that's like one he played on it so he's he's probably telling the truth but two it's a very a kind of like precise way of putting that and you can see like a bunch of um, like, like picture a bar in new york city 3 a.m most of the crowd is gone the musicians are left just having a good time working out some new songs The piano is a little out of tune but no one cares and that's 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 this album and i think that's um that's special and fun when i when i read that quote by what's his head now al cooper it it just framed the album in a different way for me that i felt i could appreciate it more
0: chris that's a great quote and i'm glad you brought that up and and i can totally buy into that that really does capture i think a feel of this and for whatever reason, this is a question I still well, want to we figure out. For whatever reason, all these things that I didn't enjoy on Highway 61, you you I'm enjoying them here, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still not sure why. And it's not like, you know, I had any preconceived, preconceived me notions me about this album. Really, I thought, I oh tried. boy, another Bob Dylan album. This is going to be the me. tough slog, and I, I wasn't trying to psych myself up, but uh, I, it, I just really enjoyed it. But. Yeah, yeah, that I mean if this is 3 a.m. I don't know what uh, what highway 61 was, you know, 6 a.m. on a major band. <laughs> I don't
2: know.
0: but yeah, no uh, uh, that, that's a real, that's a good Well, one. it makes me think um,
1: uh, I never ever really liked country music until we picked sweet corn in southern Georgia. And I drive the pickup truck or the tractor back and forth from the farm to the loading docks. And like for some reason, with like dust billowing behind me and, you know, passing people who would wave at you on the street. And uh, suddenly the song made the the music made sense. The style made sense in a way that um, someone who didn't really grow up in the deep self had ever known before. So maybe I just maybe I just need to listen to these songs when I am a little bit uh, out of my mind or something like that to really appreciate them in full.
0: I need to wait until 3 a.m. to put this on. Yeah, you need a 3 a.m. jam session at right. a bar, and then, then you'll I get it. it. There's two other tracks I really, really enjoyed. One is uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. I always assumed when I saw this, Mobile is referring to uh, Mobile, Alabama, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you guys can confirm that or not. But Seems like
1: that would have been a better choice for Forrest Gump. Wasn't he from Mobile, Alabama?
0: <laughs> uh, Gre- Greenbow. Uh, Greenbow, you're right. Greenbow County, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Dylan mentions, mentions a lot of geographical locations in his music and his poetry and his does. storytelling. Yeah, yeah. We saw that in uh, in Highway 61, a, a lot of different towns and places in the U.S. and in Mexico. He talks about Juarez in one of them, too. And, um, yeah, and here, this is no exception. He's, he's talking about different places he's been. I really like this one. Just Again, kind of a longer, a, a, a very bluesy tune, but just something about it is really nice. And then one that I've really, really been enjoying is the final track, and yeah, it's a long one, but Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, what is it, over 11 minutes? It is, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I I was listening to this yesterday, and I, I really like the melody um, in both the chorus and kind of the, there's another section where as melodic as Bob Dylan is able to be, <laughs> which is sometimes limited, uh, it, it really feels good. And what I did for this one... And for another one, a few times I listened to the track and I started singing a melody over top. So where Bob would continue to sing in monotone or kind of a speak talking, mm-hmm. I would sing and imagine my own melody over top. Um, and that was that was just kind of a fun little experiment as, as I was just listening and enjoying on my own. I thought, you know, I'd really like to hear this. With someone singing notes the whole time, so I just started, so I just started singing it, and uh, and um, it was really fun, and it's it still kind of worked. I still like the way he presents it here, but "Sad-eyed Lady of the Lowland" it, it just, you know, I was listening to it, and my wife said that's that's kind of a neat song. I said, yeah, it's good. It's 11 minutes long. She goes, 11 minutes? Why? I said, you know, I imagine that when you're making a song, you know, or if I were to write a song today. Let's say I was on a real roll, and I wrote out like 10 verses. And you go in with the guys, who you go to the studio, talk to your producer, and they go, "Okay, well, you got to pick two or three that you really like. And I imagine that uh, if anyone had said that to Bob, he probably would have told them where to go. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, said, no, I wrote 10 verses, and we're doing them all. Like, this is my art, this is my craft. So here we have, you know, I don't know how many verses, got to be 8 or 10. Um, And this is, I think this is one of his most poetic on the album, most kind of cryptic. There's a lot of imagery and a lot of stuff going on in this song. And I really, really like it. And there certainly are times when I've listened to it and going holy smokes is this song not over yet <laughs> but but again it's one i really like i i might like it if it was a little shorter but i think uh, those are my top three
2: no i love mike i love i love the long song but i here's why i feel like i love the long song either if it's like a jam track where they're just going for it for 15 minutes or like one of these more lyrical songs that Dylan has, mm. such as "Sad-eyed Lady of the Lowlands." I think the music takes you to a place that that you wouldn't get otherwise if the music was like two minutes or four minutes even. But uh, just uh, uh, it's like um, an emotional place or like what? I I well, I should have probably thought about what I was saying before I started to say it, <laughs> but. Story of my life, but. Yeah. <laughs> no, but look, 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 I'm 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 f i am i am i am i am feel like I'm on to something here, just reflecting on my own experience. Uh whatever, you know, music does and the philosophy of music, maybe you guys could cover that later. It's not really my thing or my field or my knowledge base. But there is like the the music speaks at least to me in a different way if I sit with it over a period of however many minutes and kind of get into the rhythm and the cadence and the melody. Whereas sometimes like the shorter, punchier pop songs, um, they, they, I don't know, they just come and go and um, they don't like, they don't challenge me or they don't change me. Uh, I really love Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And so it's a tremendous way to finish this album as well, because I remember, Um, you know just like sitting on the couch this afternoon as as I was listening to this and that song finished and it took me quite a while to go over and you know take the CD out and turn the stereo off and all that type of thing because it just like it ended at a moment where I don't know even what I was thinking about but it was important for you know whatever reason to sit with that and, um, and feel like Bob Dylan was trying to say something don't ask me what he was trying to say but it was a good moment and after 11 minutes. I I hear what you're saying there,
0: and I think I would agree with you that sometimes I feel I just want a little more time to get into a tune. Yeah, yeah. And there are a couple of tunes as we talked about, Visions of Johanna, which is another one I also really enjoyed, uh, that, you know, sometimes three, four minutes, you're just getting into it, and then it's over. Yeah. I know a lot of tracks, uh, another band that we've talked about a bunch already is the Beatles. The Beatles had some, awesome tunes that are like two minutes you're like oh that's it uh we could have we could have gone a little longer on that one boys (laughs) yeah yeah um but yeah dylan uh yeah yeah and and this is an album too that i think it's like 75 minutes i know it's a double but in the age of you know cds and mp3s and all that you can listen to it you know without putting on another another vinyl uh you know, it's it's a little on the long side, but not too long. It's just, well, it's just right for what's on it. Maybe you'd disagree with that, Ben. <laughs> well, yeah, I do. But uh, I, I think I'm getting what you guys are saying. And I, I'm
1: thinking about uh, within the Christian tradition, there are many different worship styles. And I know that if I go to certain congregations, they will sing uh, as long as the quote-unquote spirit leads. Um, or they will preach as long as the Spirit leads. And some people just love that. Uh, I think I, uh, if I use the parallel of, of worship services, I'm the guy checking my watch being like, uh, the Spirit's leading you, but I, I'm content with, you know, 20 minutes and, and I'm ready to move on. And I feel that way about this song too, that it is, it is easily the most beautiful and maybe the most musical uh, track of this album. But I don't know that 11 minutes, 20 seconds is any better than if this was a, a lovely five to six minute, you know, ballad length track. Um, certainly there's more musicality to it than two minutes could cover. Um, but right. yeah, I'm just thinking about the era it was made too, the the audacity of uh, one track taking up an, insi- an entire side of an album. Um, this single track is <laughs> yeah. a third of what's going on. Uh, tr- uh, an album that had nine really great songs. And this takes up a third of that time. Um, so pull it together, Dylan. Like you can do better than that. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just, uh, yeah, uh, different than Highway 61, where if there was a 12 minute track on there, I would have been like, this is terrible this I can at least appreciate and I can see why people would like it to be as long as it is. It's just not for me.
0: So here's the question guys. And, um, Chris, we haven't really asked you yet, uh, how you feel about the highway 61 revisited album. I don't know if it's one that you're as familiar with or have listened to it recently, but, uh, do you like this album blonde on blonde more than the 61 album? And secondary question,
2: for all of us why do we like this one more i actually don't own highway 61 and i don't have a good reason for that so take that as what you will well i have Um, a lot of good
0: reasons for not owning it so don't feel
2: bad (laughs) (laughs) but i do you so i was hard on i tried to be hard on you guys saying like you kind of dragged highway 61 through the mud and maybe you know whatever well we
0: did and i'll I'll own that
2: (laughs) But th- this one actually is a lot better in my view. Um, Highway 61. If I'm going to listen to it, it has to be on YouTube, and I don't, I don't ever really bother. But for whatever reason, Blonde on Blonde. It seems like Dylan has something to say, and he's put it into a melody and format that, at least for me, uh, I can sit on my computer chair and stare at the ceiling and listen to this one mm. without you know, struggling at all. So Yeah. I, I can't point to any, like, one thing, but I think that's my experience of this album, is it, it just kind of takes me somewhere, and I'm really happy to sit there and stare out the window, stare at the ceiling, let mm-hmm. Sad-Eyed Ladies of the Lowland go 11 minutes <laughs> and then not bother to take the CD out for a few minutes after.
1: I think it's... Uh... It's the album Dylan felt like he got the closest to perfection on. Like this is the, I think the quote is something like, that album gets closer to the sound in my head than any of the others did. Um, as if, like, you know, he was striving to capture what was going on
0: in his mind, and that got as close to it as, as any of them ever did. I think for me, the, the instrumentation is far more diverse and a lot better quality than on 61 uh, there's and I don't I haven't compared kind of the players on each album whether it was different people or not I think there are some different people on this one but there's t- like the pianos and the organs on this one are just way more prominent and they sound really good and the other thing too is as I was listening to um, I was listening to the song Highway 61 revisited earlier today and hearing like the slide whistle and also the harmonica the harmonica on that track is like ear piercing yeah well, it's that like, happens. yeah it's brutal but the harmonica on some of these tracks and i can't remember it's on a few of them and it really blends better like it doesn't sound like somebody's putting a, a needle through your eardrum <laughs> uh it sounds really really good it, it blends they've whether they've toned it down if they played with the mix a bit just to make it a little softer, but it seems to fit a lot better. Bob Dylan loves to play the harp and, and I love hearing him play the harp, but just, I don't know if it was something about the mix or the tuning on 61, but on this album, it it really works. It sounds better. Yeah.
1: It doesn't feel as intentionally rough around the edges either.
0: Yeah. And we talked about that with 61 and, and more of the kind of issues with tuning and recording and recording quality that, A lot of that may very well have been intentional. It's not like they didn't have the technology or the expertise in 1965 to produce a very crisp, polished album. The Beatles did it. The Beach Boys did it. So it's not like they couldn't do it, but did they decide to do something else? And I think that's kind of what happened. Again, we see some tuning issues and some other, what we would call today as recording or quality issues on this album but it doesn't seem to matter as much to me it's not at a detriment Am I
1: am I thinking uh, or remembering correctly that Highway 61 was mostly performed by Dylan or were there artists that joined oh, That's then? a
2: good question. I have no idea
1: Oh no, there were other artists there Ah, thought that was going to
0: be Silver Bullet. I think a lot of different artists. Uh, we see Al Cooper is on both, but I think some different Al, some different artists. But yeah, there was a lot of other because, yeah, Bob does mostly vocals, guitar, and harmonica, and then you know a little bit of maybe piano or uh, assorted whistles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's, that's very funny. <laughs> that is
0: funny <laughs> any other question? any other comments guys on any tracks on this album
1: i no i will say um it doesn't sound as uh political as Hi- highway 61 and i think had you told me that ahead of time before i listened to both i would have assumed that i would have liked the political one more um, maybe there's layers to these tracks that i'm not picking up on yeah normally i'm more drawn to to the edgier lyrical quality in this this doesn't feel as edgy as the last, uh, um, with this, with these tracks. But, um, so it's, it's a bit of a surprise to me
2: on a song that I forgot. Well, I didn't forget, but it just wasn't in my, my mind. When I put this album on, it was, I was, it was a pleasant surprise to go through this again and hear the song, obviously five believers. And it struck me kind of, I've never been to um, like a dance hall blues type of event, but in my imagination, this would be like the ideal song to play in that setting. And it seemed at least to me to stand out a little bit on the album because Dylan has put some pretty catchy hooks on harmonica and on guitar on obviously Five Believers. And uh, I really liked there was a few few moments in that song. Where everyone would cut out, and there was like a little drum hook that came on between uh, the verses. And I, I'd forgotten that song was on there. And and I, you know, it's one of those where I just like this is great. This is a pleasant surprise. I love the hooks. I love the drum riff. I love that kind of dance hall blues feel.
0: Yeah, that's a really, uh, really upbeat kind of rock and jamming song. Yeah, I guess. I guess the only thing I would say is that. Not being familiar with Dylan's albums in general, and Highway 61 being the first one I really listened to, I and I didn't really enjoy it. I expected the Blonde on Blonde to be similar, uh, sorry, similar, and uh, I guess that's not fair, but that's just kind of the image I had of it, and uh, it wasn't at all. It wasn't. I didn't find it similar, and I. And I really enjoyed it, as we've discussed. And what I didn't like about Highway 61 was kind of just rambling raw blues tunes that sound like they came out of maybe the late 50s, uh, recorded in a way that was very raw, was not clean and polished. And I thought that this would be the same. The interesting thing is that there is still a lot of that. There's a lot mm-hmm. of kind of the raw sound, uh, not as crisp as some of the other recordings at the same that come out at the same time. But still, I really enjoyed it. And that kind of raw quality combined with, you know, this, as we've discussed, uh, rich instrumentation and diversity and a lot of really good melodies just made it a lot more enjoyable. So I was very biased coming into it, but I'm glad that that didn't overshadow too much that I
2: wasn't able to really enjoy this album. Yeah. Mike, let me pick up on that just for two shakes here. I, like his his acoustic stuff, his very very folky stuff was very um, melody heavy as well. To the extent that you can say Dylan stuff is melody heavy, I don't know what happened with '61. Like you, it kind of just you're right. You're you're actually right to say it's kind of like a, a talking almost mumble. But on hmm. this one, it seemed like that, uh, that, that those folky sensibilities he had on his earlier albums came back to the fore. Yeah yeah he
1: took the best of his of his folk era and uh and mixed in a little bit of the electric yeah i agree
0: and if if neither of you can answer this question that that's fine because I don't know the answer but was sixty one the first album where he really embraced and adopted that kind of speak talking uh style that we're so familiar with, or had he done that before
2: I'm tempted to say. On some of his like pure folk, like just him and the guitar, there are there are speed talking, mumbling tracks. Um, right. Uh, off the top of my head, there's I think there's one called "Talking Wor- World War Three Blues" on maybe Free Will and Bob Dylan. So it's a very mumbly, whatever, whatever. But maybe Highway 61 was him exploring that. Mm-hmm. Musical sensibility he has, but I'm, right. I'm I I think we landed on this. He's bringing his folk sensibility back on Blonde on Blonde, and I like that. I really like that.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: So there's a couple things that are are still just hang ups for me on these Dylan albums. Something about um, this dynamic that I think I'd prefer. These songs, if another person was singing them. Um, right. And while talking about this at dinner time tonight um, with my family, we got to this uh, moment where we were thinking about the musical tradition of the uh, faith tradition that I come from, the Mennonite tradition, which Mike is also a part of or came out of. And in that tradition, singing, I would argue sometimes is even more important than scripture, and a specific kind of singing that is complementary, uh, harmonious, uh, with lots of different voices singing different notes but but making uh, beautiful harmony together. I think it it symbolizes community connection and um, And the power of of community connection, Dylan's voice is often out of key and almost never has any harmony tracks with it. I think your comment earlier, Mike, about um, singing over top of him, I think I would probably enjoy it if there was a second uh, Dylan track, um, even if it was also out of key, but trying to create some harmony there, I'd probably enjoy it just a little bit more. Um, and it, it's making me wonder how much of my enjoyment of Dylan is, or, or, lack thereof is partially because of the way that I've been musically shaped by that, um, religious tradition and the way that, uh, mm. I, I think when I look at my, um, albums that I have held on to for the longest length of time, they all include, uh, multiple voices, harmonizing, um, and maybe a striving for a, a musical quality that's not willing to just say the words are more important than the music. I think obvi- often I would say the the opposite is true that I want the sound to be better than the lyrics, and that's interesting and and something that's I'm going to have to wrestle with uh, for a little bit longer as I as I digest all of this. Um, I, I don't think this is our last Dylan album either, right? We've got a couple more opportunities to.
2: Um, oh, yeah. Engage
1: his music, and uh, and it will be interesting to see how um, how that journey takes another turn. Because I do I do enjoy this one more than Highway 61 Revisited, but I'm I'm still hesitant to say that I loved it <clears throat> or that it was worthy of being called one of the greatest albums of all time. Um, and and part of, and what I'm realizing is it's probably a personal bias on the kind of music that
0: I'm drawn to. Yeah, I got nothing to say to that. That's uh, well, that, well said, bud. <laughs> well, I, I got nothing. <laughs> so I,
1: I got a little preachy there, but
0: um, no, that's well, that that's okay, and that's uh, you know that's what this is all about, kind of how it how we relate to it. It feels sacrilegious, though. Like I feel
1: like, for oh. people who appreciate music, you're supposed to appreciate Dylan, and I um, and I'm not sure why. I just can't get over that that hurdle.
2: It probably is set within its time too. You know what I mean. Yeah. Like, like uh, sometimes at at youth, I'll put on a CD that I've loved for a long time because I just I get tired of Christian contemporary, which we usually have on in the gym at uh, youth group, and the kids will all be like, they won't connect. Mm-hmm. But um, it's something that spoke to me at the time. I'm thinking like. Bonnie Vare, whatever album had holocene on it was just Mm -hmm. tremendous and it like it broke through everything else that was being recorded and played at the time like it was it was soft and quiet and beautiful and it had great uh instrumentation and orchestration and like the the kids that come to youth they don't they don't grab it now maybe that's because it's not the best album to play Dodgeball to so I'm willing to concede the <laughs> point <laughs> but I wonder here's the thing is I wonder if maybe and maybe you guys can speak to this if, if it strikes a chord is Dylan has probably done something here that like broke through what everyone else was doing and and you, you, I think you, we do have to appreciate kind of the, the, the seminal nature of his work. Yeah even if it like doesn't fully strike us.
1: Yeah. And I don't think we realize, like, I think the power of having, um, Reverend King on when we were, when we were talking about what's going on was that her lived experience in the moment that the album came out, like totally illuminated it in ways that we probably would never have considered. And I think I take for granted that Dylan has always existed. And I forget that there, there was a moment before this album where, um, where this was surprising and revolutionary and, mm-hmm. um, and all of that. And I think a lot of my favorite music that I listen to now, that's more current, probably even Bonnie um, wouldn't have been possible if not for people like Bob Dylan pushing the envelopes on what could be done in a recording studio. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or like, um, you remember when probably this is a shared experience, like Sufjan Stevens, Illinois came out. Like. Oh everyone like like it was just it was a watershed moment and it still is a great album it didn't sound like anything else but it's like because it had the banjo and like flutes and gazoos and all the other stuff and it was still like kind of like rock and roll it you might say it was like the birth of or the resurgence of indie rock for our time and so maybe, yep. you know, people are going to review that album in, in 50 years or whatever and say, I don't get it. What's with the weird banjo and, you know, and all these things in behind. But for us, it was like it, it broke through everything else that was going on at the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even in the moment, I remember thinking, I can't believe that someone made this. And yeah. I can't believe how great I feel. I feel it. I feel how great it is while I'm listening to it. Yeah. Um, that duality of like this should never have been uh recorded and and why is it selling yeah (laughs) and I can't believe how great this is and you're right I think his uh kind of very very soft almost falsetto another generation will look back on and say like he's not singing properly and uh yeah that's a great parallel that gives me just a nugget of extra appreciation
2: for Dylan. Thanks, Chris. Well, yeah, don't, no, don't mention it. But here, the point is like I wonder, if, <laughs> like if that's you know if that's our deal. Like we just we weren't yeah. there. We don't have the experience of of the pop music at the time and the and the way that this probably broke through. So yeah, and uh,
1: I think this came up when we talked about Highway 61. But uh, you know, when we were teenagers. Dylan had almost become, uh, you, you know, everyone had their own Dylan impression. And when so- when we were working, and a song of his would come on the radio, everyone would start doing their Dylan impressions. He was almost, a, you know, it, he was at the point of just becoming a joke, in the same way that, you know, everyone has a Bill Cosby impression, or everyone has a, and we don't realize um, that to become so successful that people all have an impression of you um, takes, takes a lot of talent. You know, Jay Leno is another person who I think, longevity-wise, generations are gonna look back on and be like, why did they think he was worthy of being on late-night TV? But yeah. everyone will probably have their own Leno impression. And uh, uh, it, yeah, so yeah, that's helpful too, to, to think about the context.
0: Yeah, you know, moving into one of our last segments here, does this we i think we've discussed that the album does sound dated it does sound fixed in a specific time it sounds like you know came out in the 60s uh is it still relevant uh we've discussed how it's relevant to us personally is this an album that that is relevant kind of if you just kind of stuck it on somewhere in public today are there some parts of it that would resonate or none of it that would what are any comments on that
2: I think there's a lot of cultural value to this And some of these tracks are quite enduring um, Just like a woman is covered I remember going to some uh, Probably it was the Elmira Maple Syrup Festival And someone was covering Just like a woman from the band show. So, So like, there's an enduring cultural value mm. um, This week I'll probably Put some Dylan albums in the car Which is where I tend to listen to albums because the kids are so noisy at home, it, I can. Conf- it probably won't be this one, <laughs> but I do think this. Th- th- it still has something to say to me. It had something to say to me this afternoon when I was listening to it again. Right. And I would be surprised if, if generations to come didn't pick this up and like listen to Visions of Johanna and say, "I got, I got to appreciate and hear what Dylan is doing here." I would agree with you, and I think that.
0: Yeah, maybe to the general populace it might be more of a stretch, but um, although I had to dig a little bit, uh, this one really struck me uh, more so lyrically and also musically. Um, It's got some of the very common elements of of blues tunes that are not, you know, they're not outrageous. Uh, They're a little more modern than kind of the blues of the 50s but they're blues elements that still play out in blues music today. So you can put that on and and still, you know, it doesn't seem totally out of place. So yeah, I think, uh, I think it's still relevant in many ways. Any comments on that, Ben?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, definitely seems more uh, timely uh, musically um, than Highway 61 Revisited. Um, I don't know that, you know this this moment in time right now seems to call for lyrical content that pushes back an authority and i don't get that from this album in the same way i did from highway 61 and uh so i I guess i feel myself longing that it was a bit more it was a bit punchier with its uh with its lyrics because dylan was so known for that um Right, but I think it holds up a little bit better from a from a pure listening uh, standpoint, um, and that's an interesting dynamic that I wouldn't have considered coming into this. Listen, how much longer until another Dylan album? Ooh, <laughs> and, do, uh, and do you want to come back, Chris? I
0: don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, let me know if it went all right. <laughs>
0: oh no, this has been great. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of great stuff. A lot of good conversation. Okay. You know, when it's done, when it's done in like
2: 20 minutes, you know, it didn't go very well, but this is, sure. <laughs> you know, we've been talking for over an hour, so that's a good sign. <laughs> so my my challenge, I think, and I, there's no homework. I'm not checking up, you know, do whatever you want. You have a lot of music I presume you're listening to, but the, the one Dylan album that, that really, really stuck out to me and will probably end up in my car this week because I was thinking about it today and yesterday. Um, is the soundtrack to the Dylan biopic No Direction Home. And the reason oh I love it is is the first disc is outtakes, outtakes and bootlegs from his his just acoustic, uh, very melodic um, years. and it's haunting and it's compelling. like it's really really, really beautiful. even even the scratchy tracks. You just turn them up a little bit, driving wherever you're going, and it's wonderful. And then the second side is kind of the more um, rock and roll, mumbly blue stuff. But they are also outtakes that are just, they give a different kind of feel. And some some of the, if I can say this, like the annoying bits of his songs um, with like the tuba and the slide whistles, they don't appear on the outtakes. And I guess Dylan really felt strongly about the the silly bits of those songs to leave them in on the studio album so no direction home it's a double disc i think that movie came out i forget when sometime 2007 or so i think it was a martin scorsese film actually but but it's (laughs) like it's a it's a well well curated um mix of dylan stuff from his early days so do what you want with that but i think i'm going to pull that from the shelf this week and and have another go with it
1: cool it looks like we've got um number 16 is Blood on the Tracks or on yeah. the list and then number, 30, number 31 is Bringing It All Back Home so uh, here in the top uh, 30 couple we've got a few more here that will we'll have to wrestle with
0: and then I don't think we hit it again until 97 uh, Freewheel and Bob Dylan oh really yep that's a great album yeah. too And uh, and there's a few more after that but that'll be a while
1: well, every yeah. uh, every week we like to ask, was it sound logic for the people who made this list to include this album on, on the list and to include it at its spot on the list? So, Chris, why don't you kick us off and let us know, what do you think? Was it sound logic to place Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan at number nine on Rolling Stone's top 500 list?
2: Oh, man. Like... I, I appreciate that 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 the curators of this list like have to manage a lot of interests, a lot of tastes, a lot of like yeah. orientations to music. So they probably um you know just felt this was the best and I'm willing to go by their opinion. If I was to make, you know, the Chris Clements top five hundred albums, would this be at nine? I don't know. Um no. But it would be under top 50 I would say I'm comfortable with that
0: I agree I don't know if I'd have it this high I have still have no idea why if you're gonna insist on putting a Dylan album in the top 10 that highway 61 is you know five albums better than this album I still right. don't understand that I I still think that the only reason they did it is because like a Rolling Stone was the title track on the album. And there was some obligation to do that because it's the name of the magazine. I still feel that that has something to do with it. I don't know if anyone would ever admit to that or, or say that, or whether that was even the case, but um, I, it just, it just makes no sense to me. This album, although it's, I really like it. And if we're talking about Dylan as an influential artist, and if you're putting an album up this high, because of how influential and how long he's been around and and how many people he's affected, then sure. I I think this is a good album to have up there. I think maybe closer to 15. Hmm. Um, I agree with you, Chris, like definitely, you know, top 50 for sure. And definitely one of the better albums and certainly an artist that deserves recognition. Uh, But I think, I think there's still a good number of albums you know, in the last 50, 60 years that have done, that are a little better than this. Uh, but that being said, I re- I still really enjoyed it. I just, yeah, still think a little high.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. I think uh, very similar to Exile on Main Street. I I could probably chop half the songs and, be, uh, and find it to be a much more enjoyable listening experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like this one a whole lot more than Highway 61, and I'll echo that. Uh, it's perplexing to me that, that these albums aren't at least switched in their spots. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't, you know, personally, I don't think I would put either one of them in, in the top 10 lists uh, of the greatest albums of all time. But um, as we've already mentioned, I was not alive when, when they came out and I don't really have a good sense of how pivotal they were uh, for music history. Um, and if this is an album list built on, you know, the impact that albums made, it's pretty hard for, for those of us who were born in the 1980s to, to make sense of some of these things that came out uh, 20 years before we were born. Um, mm. So I'll, uh, I'll maybe punt this a little bit and say uh, it's probably appropriate, but I wouldn't put it there. <laughs> we're, uh, we're getting close to the uh, end of the top 10, Mike, so coming up here we'll have to do a, a re-ranking of the top 10 and, and see where they end up um,
0: for us. Yeah. Very very interesting. And I wonder if, you know, as we get even outside of the top 10, because I'm sure, I'm sure when we re-rank that, there'll be a few. And I think Highway 61 will be one for me that I would say doesn't even deserve to be on the top 10. I I wonder if as we get just a little beyond the top 10, we'll be saying, you know, yeah, we re-ranked it and moved this down to nine or 10. And I think this one should take its place, you know, kind Mm. of thing. Yep. Um, but, yeah, we are getting close to that point. Uh, so thank you, everyone, once again for joining us. And a special thank you to Chris Clements. Thank you for joining us and discussing this album.
2: Oh, wow, was so great, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, fun times. So
0: glad we're friends now, too. Uh, and and <laughs> an extra, extra special thanks for joining us, even though we already trashed Dylan on the previous album. <laughs> yeah. we're, uh, we're glad we didn't scare you off.
1: What do we got coming up next, Mike?
0: Well, next week, we're going to discuss album number 10 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. And this is the White Album by The Beatles. I'm looking forward to it. The fourth album we've discussed by The Beatles on this list so far. So we're at it once again.
1: Thanks again, Chris. It's a pleasure.
0: If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at
1: our Facebook page on Instagram or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.